covenant of redemption, it gives us a full orb picture of the doctrine of election, one that is not simply abstracted, but rather that has all of the bones, joints, and ligaments of a full uh, and complete body of truth that says, you were chosen in Christ, who was appointed as covenant surety by the Father. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. This is Matthew Barrett, your host, and I am excited to begin a conversation about things eternal. Oftentimes when we discuss theology on the Credo Podcast, we are looking into salvation, the the order of salvation, or perhaps the work of Christ and, and what he accomplishes in his person and work on the cross, for example, or in his resurrection. But every now and again, it's it's important for us to take a step back and to understand that everything that we read about in Scripture, from the work of Christ to the work of the Holy Spirit, is not accidental. In fact, it's planned by God in eternity. When we think about the history of redemption, we are right to follow the storyline of Scripture from beginning to end. But We have to remember that God's saving plan is eternal. Uh, Salvation or redemption isn't uh, something that God thought of in the moment, uh, as if his plans were resisted and uh, man has triumphed over them, and then he must come up with uh, a plan B, perhaps. Actually, what God accomplishes in history has been planned in eternity, and it is according to his perfect saving plan will. We also must remember that not only is God's plan eternal, it is deeply and inherently and intrinsically Trinitarian in nature. This shouldn't surprise us because as we follow salvation through the storyline of Scripture, we see all three persons of the Trinity, not just one or two, but all three persons. And this takes us back into eternity where we are taught from the Scriptures that our God is triune. He is one in essence, but that one undivided essence subsists in three undivided persons. We can also add one more element, and that is not only is God's saving plan eternal, not only is it Trinitarian, but it is covenantal. Typically, when we think of the word covenant, we rightly go to, say, the covenant with Abraham, where God himself has covenanted with one of his creatures, who, who and through whom he will bring about his saving plan of redemption to the nations. But did you also know that if we go back in time, uh, before Abraham, before even Adam, to eternity, we also discover that this eternal Trinitarian plan of salvation is covenantal in nature. It's a covenant that occurs between the persons of the, the Godhead, well, I am delighted to have with us John Fesco, J.V. Fesco, uh, previously a professor at Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, now, though, he is the recently uh, new appointed 
professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, RTS Jackson. Uh, John has written a number of different books. Uh, I can't mention them all, even in this recording. Uh, A couple, though, that you should pay attention to would be his book, Death and Adam, Life in Christ, The Doctrine of Imputation, which is published in the Red series that John and I edit with Christian Focus and Mentor Publishing. You also may want to pick up his book on justification with PNR, which is a superb treatment of this Reformation doctrine. And he's written most recently uh, a new book called Reforming Apologetics, Retrieving, uh, Retrieving the Classic Reformed Approach to Defending the Faith. John, it's uh, such a delight, especially uh, you being a friend. It's such a delight to have you on the Credo Podcast. Matthew, it's fantastic to be with you. I'm excited to be able to talk about the Covenant of Redemption with you. Now, you may have noticed that I, in many of the books I mentioned that, that you've written, uh, I left out uh, one of them, uh, your book, The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption, also with Christian Focus and Mentor. Uh, I left it out because that's really the focus of our conversation. And mm-hmm. it, it, this covenant of redemption, I think, if, if I had to take a guess, I think to most of those listening, and maybe to most Christians in the church today, maybe even most pastors, it is completely foreign. So let's just mm-hmm. begin with definitions. I was creeping my way toward it, though I didn't really define it mm-hmm. in some of my opening comments. What is exactly this covenant of redemption, and how would you define it? Yeah, I think a simple definition would be is that the covenant of redemption is the eternal intra-Trinitarian agreement among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not only to plan, but also to execute the plan of the salvation of the Bride of Christ. I think that would be, you know, just the simplest kind of definition, and then from there, we could go in to explore some of the different avenues and the different aspects of that definition. Now, when you may have uh, said this, I know you say this throughout your book, The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption, but you may hear, when when you hear others talk about uh, this covenant, you may hear them focus on the Son, for example, but uh, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the close, those with a uh, an ear to hear will notice that you just mentioned all three persons of the Godhead. Mm-hmm. Why is that so important that we not just focus, for example, on the Son in relation to the Father? Yeah, you know, I think historically it's been uh, articulated both ways. Some advocates of the doctrine will say that the covenant of redemption is, is exclusively an agreement or a covenant between God the Father and God the Son, uh, and in that particular covenant, the Holy Spirit is not directly involved. And I think at first blush, that sounds uh, somewhat, uh, I don't know, anti-Trinitarian, or it's been called binitarian in the sense that it's only two persons of the Trinity, and we're supposed to say that the works of the triune God are indivisible and that they always operate in concert. But the way that that historic formulation has been is that theologians will talk about the Trinitarian Council of God that produces the covenant between the Father and the Son. And so they want to talk about the covenant of redemption as a part of the doctrine of Christology. And it's like I tell my students, we don't have a problem saying that 
Jesus alone is the mediator, uh, and so that we can perhaps distinguish specific works of individual members of the Trinity without splintering uh, the Trinity. But that being said, there are other theologians, and there's probably, I have not counted noses officially, but it's probably maybe a minority, I couldn't tell you how much of a minority position, but a minority position that says that, no, the, the covenant of redemption is not merely between the Father and the Son, but rather it's between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think that, in my judgment, that is the preferable way to account for this eternal, or you could say pre-temporal, um, uh, intra-Trinitarian interaction, if you will, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they covenant together uh, to bring about the redemption of the people of God. Now, you're using this word covenant. What does, mm-hmm. I mean, when we talk about covenant, we, we can talk about uh, the covenant of creation or the covenant of works. Maybe we talk about the covenant God made with Abraham or David or Moses. Mm-hmm. Are mm-hmm. you using the word covenant here to talk about a covenant between the persons of the Godhead in a way that is similar or different? Can you flesh that out some? Yeah, you know, on the one hand, the term covenant is perhaps one of the more hotly debated terms uh, in in theology, say in the in the late 19th, early, you know, in the 20th century, in that, for the most part, historically speaking, uh, theologians would say that at its most fundamental level, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. That being said, and it, it can be an agreement of uh, many different types. It can be an agreement where God, for example, with Abraham says, I'm going to save you, I'm going to do this on your behalf what some people would call a unilateral agreement uh, or something that where it's more just purely given. Whereas other covenants in the scriptures, say, for example, the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech, where they agree not to dig each other's wells up and destroy one another's wells, is that they, you know, it's, it's an agreement between two equal parties where they say, hey, you, you do this and I'll do this, so that it's more of a bilateral, bilateral agreement. And so fundamentally, I think that we can say that it's an agreement. It might lean more towards something like uh, a promise on the one hand versus, on the other hand, it could be something that is more uh, interactive where there are more requirements and or conditions. But ultimately, uh, we don't want to put a straitjacket definition on the term covenant and say that every occurrence of the term means this. Uh, or means agreement, or means a bilateral agreement, or a unilateral promise, because it just it's always dependent upon context. In some contexts, it's purely unilateral. Say, for example, such as the Noahic covenant, where God says, I'm going to preserve the earth, and it's irrespective of what human beings do. Whereas on the other hand, you know, God gives to Adam, for example, in historic covenant theology in the Reformed tradition, God gives to Adam the covenant and says, you know, in the, la- the language of Leviticus 18.5, they, as theologians put it together, if you do this, you will live. In other words, if you don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll live. And so that's more where there are conditions, and it's Adam who has to supply the conditions. Whereas in the covenant of grace with uh, Abraham, God himself is providing the conditions by giving to Abraham faith. Uh, and the requisite regenerative work of the Spirit in order to keep Abraham faithful. So it all depends on what covenant we're talking about. 
But in this particular case, we can say that it's an agreement, it's a commitment uh, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where God promises certain things, the Son commits to certain things, the Spirit commits to certain things, and then they carry these things out uh, in the execution of the plan of redemption. Now, John, would you also say that this commitment or promise or pact, however however we want to define it, this commitment, mm-hmm. say, on the Son's part, for example, to focus on the Son for a second, is this a free, mm-hmm. voluntary choice on the Son's part? And if so, why why is it why is that qualification important to note? Yeah, because we want to say that the, the, the triune God was not under any necessity or obligation either to create or to redeem, uh, but rather this is the voluntary action um, of the triune God, just in general, when we're talking about creation or redemption. But in particular, when we get to um, the specific nature of the Son's commitment, is that the Father says, in essence, I w- I'm going to send you, are you willing to go? And then the Son says, yes, I'm willing to go. And so you see that sending language, for example, shot through the Gospel of John, where in John's Gospel, I think it's some 30-plus times, uh, Christ says, I am sent. I've been sent by the Father. And then he also says, you know, conversely, Father, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. So that it's not of some sort of necessity, but rather it is voluntary, because if it was out of some sort of necessity, then you begin to, I think, fall into some sort of um, uh, pantheistic kind of idea where the God and the creation are necessarily linked, that in order for God to be God, he has to create, and therefore he has to, in some sense, redeem. Whereas if we, we rightly recognize the differentiation between creature uh, and creator, or more specifically, contingent being versus a being that has self-existence, self-existence, that is God, then we have to acknowledge that salvation from the triune God is voluntary, but specifically the Son's willingness to come to save the elect is also voluntary. And of course, you see that I think so beautifully captured by the Apostle Paul, uh, say, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following, where he says that Christ took on the form of a servant and became obedient unto the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, you've mentioned John's gospel uh, already. All of this sent language uh, is critical to the covenant of redemption, or sometimes it's called the pactum salutis. All this language mm-hmm. in John's gospel is is important to uh, seeing this covenant at work, and, and sometimes it's, it's more or less assumed, even in some of Jesus' mm-hmm. language, the closer he gets to the cross. Would you also say, mm-hmm. I mean, is this is this covenant of redemption, is, just, is this just a, um, a phenomenon of, of John's gospel, or is this a, a doctrine that we can see across the Testaments? Yeah, no, it's for sure something that we see across the Testaments. You know, I mean, looking back, for example, <clears throat> at the New Testament and the, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is commissioning his disciples 
and he tells them uh, there in the upper room as he's celebrating the Last Supper with them, he says in Luke 22, 29, and I'll read the ESV at this point, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Now, what's important here, and I'm not sure why, I have to ask some of the folks that you know translated the ESV and many of the other English translations uh, a question. Theodore Beza, back in the 16th century, in his own uh, Greek annotated uh, version of the New Testament, noted that when Luke uses the term there, he uses the term diatithemi, uh, not uh, the term for a sign, which might be something else, and that in the Latin it was translated as dispono, whereas Beza said, no, you, you shouldn't, this shouldn't be a point or a sign, but rather this should be the Latin term pachyscore, which is to covenant. And so what the Greek says there is Christ says, I covenant to you as my Father covenanted to me a kingdom. Well, that, that begs the question, when did the Father covenant to the Son a kingdom? Because, uh, you know, there's no historical record of the Father in the ministry of Christ uh, verbally uh, conveying or covenanting with him a kingdom. So I think that naturally pushes us back into other passages of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Historically, the way that uh, theologians have explained it is in texts, for example, such as um, Psalm 2 7 where he says, you know, I have, you know, today, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, and it says there at the beginning of that verse, I will tell of the decree. Now, one of the things that I'd like to point out to my students is, is that when you have somebody like, um, say, Patrick Gillespie, who's a 17th century Presbyterian theologian, and then you have uh, Gerhard von Rod, uh, a German somewhat mildly liberal at points, uh, you know, a New Testament or Old Testament scholar from the 20th century, both saying that the term decree is synonymous and interchangeable with the term covenant, and they go and lay out the, the, the same types of arguments, that to me makes me stand up and take notice that you can have people hundreds of years apart with very different theological commitments coming to the very same exegetical and theological conclusions. And so the whole question is, is when he says, I will tell of the decree, or I tell of the covenant, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That again draws us into the question of when historically uh, does the Father say to ultimately the Messiah, I covenant uh, this to you. And what theologians have explained is that in, in 2 Samuel 7.14, when God covenanted with uh, David that he would place his son on the throne, and then the psalmist, for example, uh, describes that promise in Psalm 89 as a covenant, that what they said is what we find typically, or what we find typified in the covenant promise to David to put uh, essentially the Messiah on the throne is we find that it reaches back and has its roots in eternity, where the Father covenants with the Son to appoint him as mediator and as covenant surety. And then when you fast forward into the New Testament, and you find Christ saying, I've been sent, this is the work that I have been given by my Father, or I covenant to you a kingdom as my Father covenanted to me a kingdom, or in particular, say, for example, in the book of Hebrews, 
and chapter 7, where it talks about Christ saying that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, or a covenant surety, uh, that here the author of Hebrews is talking about the Father appointing the Son to be the guarantor, the covenant surety, and the, 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 the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 110 and his divine, Christ's divine appointment as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All of this, again, begs the question, when did this appointing take place? When did these events transpire? And I think that you look at this, and the universal answer has to be, it's in eternity, in this intra-Trinitarian deliberation, so to speak, that occurs between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this eternal covenant of redemption essentially projects out into uh, history and creates uh, the covenant of grace into which Christ enters into history as mediator and fulfills on behalf of the the elect. And so all of this is to say is that the testimony of this doctrine, I think, is spread, as you said, across the Testaments. And there's not just one text that points to it, but rather numerous different passages from the Old and New Testament that to give witness to the existence of this doctrine. We've been talking about the covenant of redemption with John Fesco, but let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry content. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu mdiv today. We're back from our break and ready to continue our conversation about the covenant of redemption. John, that is a strong case that you've just made uh, from a number of different uh, texts, Old Testament and New Testament, though I I think our listeners can tell from from how you just described it uh, what the New Testament is describing, especially when it quotes, say, uh, a Psalm 110, for example, what, what, what the New Testament is describing in language of New Covenant, all of this is, it, it takes us back, uh, and it, it makes us ask that question that you just raised. Well, well, where does this originate from? And, of course, uh, this Trinitarian, intra-Trinitarian covenant is, uh, as you've described it, this intra-Trinitarian covenant uh, this is truly the eternal origin of, of everything we see play out in history itself. Now, mm-hmm. given the, the, the many places, and, and in your book, The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption, uh, just so our listeners know, they, they, you can find chapters where you discuss other, uh, other places in Scripture where we see this covenant uh, play itself out. But given, given this exegetical... Um, this exegetical support, why is it that 
uh, you you could come across a reader could come across uh, any number number of modern or contemporary reformed theologians who object mm-hmm. to it. That that sometimes raises the question in in the reader's mind. Well, is this doctrine uh, historically a reformed one, or or is this um, is this novel in some sense? Can you maybe mm-hmm. add some clarity to some of that confusion? Sure, I hope I can. We'll, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> um, in that, uh, basically, you know, when you read somebody like Hermann Witsius, who is a Dutch 17th century Reformed theologian, and he begins to explain the nature of the doctrine, he goes back and he quotes several other theologians, among whom include, for example, say, Thomas Aquinas. And so you could say, look, he's going all the way back to the Middle Ages, and that it's in the Middle Ages that theologians for example, like Aquinas, or even earlier in the patristic period, tried to explain various passages of Scripture, such as the statements that Christ makes when he says, the Father is greater than I. Or they would read these statements in the Scriptures about the Father sending the Son. And so we can say that substantively, the question and the doctrine has always been a part of uh, the greater Catholic tradition uh, and that's Catholic with a small c, the Church Universal, as we uh, have been trying to understand how the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate one to another. But then, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, I think as theologians were explaining these terms, and these ideas, I should say, is that uh, they got a clearer look at the Scriptures because they began to exegete them in the original languages. Up until the 16th century, the dominant translation uh, of the scriptures was the Latin Vulgate. And so people were using scriptures, but they were using a translation of them. And so when theologians like um, Beza, for example, notes, hey, wait a minute, the Greek term here doesn't mean a point, it means covenant, that ended up bringing a greater degree of clarity to the topic and to the questions that they were asking so that they could say that, hey, the Father sending the Son isn't simply an appointment of the Son, but rather it is um, a covenantal uh, appointment. So as they're looking at these things in Greek and Hebrew, there's much greater clarity and much greater exegetical light that gets shown upon the subject, and thus brings this this into greater uh, precise uh, clarity. But then as we get into the, the 20th century, and it starts somewhere in the late 19th century, Theologians, even in the Reformed tradition, had taken what was more or less the, the fundamentally agreed-upon definition of a covenant as, an, as basically an agreement. So depending upon context, it's going to take on slightly different uh, uh, nuances here and there. And they wanted to make it purely promissory, <clears throat> that there were no conditions whatsoever. And then that theologians, in addition to that, say, for example, such as John Murray in the 20th century, said that covenants are purely historical and not at all eternal, and so he rejects, for example, the covenant of redemption because covenants are only uh, something that occur within history. And so with that shift, I think that people begin to think that the covenant of redemption is a, you know, problematic doctrine uh, or troubling doctrine. One of the other trends that come about comes about is the assumption that theologians just based it upon one text, uh, chiefly uh, Zechariah 6.13, uh, 
which is one of the one of the common texts that's often cited in favor of it, but not the only text by far. In fact, I tell my students you could eliminate reference to that text and still argue the doctrine quite quite soundly. Now that being said, I want that passage. Don't take it away from me. But they thought it was just a one text doctrine, and you know certain theologians, such as I think it's Herman Hoeksema, described it as uh, scholastic sophistry. And it was the assumption that, hey, they're just kind of making this stuff up. But as we come into the present day, one of the huge benefits that we've had is the rediscovery of primary source texts that we've been able to get access to. So you have, you know, the translation of Turretin available. You have uh, Owen, which was republished in the 60s. And prior to that, I remember reading a statement by Sinclair Ferguson that said that prior to the 1960s, it was rare for any uh, English theologian to speak of John Owen, let alone to own copies of his works. You have many, many works that have come out that have given us access not only to the theology of our forefathers, but also their exegetical labors. All you have to do, for example, is go to the you know the Protestant, uh, Post-Reformation Digital Library, prdl.org, and look at the tens of thousands of digital copies of early modern theological books and commentaries that are up there, so that you can see, no, these theologians were, most of them, not all of them, but most of them were rigorously exegetical. And so I think that as we've been able to excavate some of this material, uh, we've been able to see the, 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 their exegesis, and as I mentioned earlier, you can see that hey, if Gerhard von Rod and Patrick Gillespie spread out by 300 years can come to the same exegetical conclusion, that ought to show us that, wait a minute, there's, there's good warrant here for recognizing the veracity and the accuracy of their theological conclusions on this doctrine. Now, John, you, in arguing for the covenant of redemption, we're talking about an intra-Trinitarian covenant that is uh, eternal, mm-hmm. occurring before the foundation uh, of, of the world. Mm-hmm. So here we even start to get into some Pauline language. Uh, mm-hmm. However, the covenant of redemption has major implications, wouldn't you say, for the Historia Salutis and the Ordo Salutis, both the, the work of Christ in, in, in history and also the application of that work by the Holy Spirit to the church and individual believers. Can you, uh, you've written before on uh, doctrines like justification, imputation, or perhaps we could even talk about the work of Christ on the cross or resurrection. How, how is the covenant of redemption essential and maybe foundational for understanding mm-hmm. what, what then comes in uh, the Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis? Yeah. For me, I think that one of the most uh, insightful observations on this doctrine comes from uh, Gerhardus Voss's essay on the history of the, the doctrine of the covenant in the Reformed tradition, which was an inaugural lecture that he wrote, and it's in uh, Voss's uh, collected shorter uh, writings edited by uh, Dick Gaffin. And uh, what he says in that essay really struck me when he said that the covenantal redemption <clears throat> that we have finds its origins, and you could say finds its 
its lines and its contours, so to speak, um, in terms of its eternal covenantal root. More specifically, he doesn't use this precise language, but he's saying that the covenant of redemption shapes the covenant of grace. Or another way that he says this is he says that the order of salvation takes on and looks the way that it does because of the nature of the covenant of redemption. So we can flesh that out a little bit, and we can start first with redemptive history. And we can even back up further, and we can go into eternity and ask the question, why is it that we always talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that order? Uh, why do we say, why wouldn't we say Holy Spirit, Son, and Father? Or why wouldn't we say some other order? And that's because historically the Church has recognized that there is an order. It's not a superior superiority order. It's not that the Father's, you know, somehow ontologically superior to the Son of the Spirit, but rather this is just simply the order that the Trinity reveals uh, himself in, in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see this in the grand sweep of redemptive history. In the simplest of terms, you know, it's in the beginning God, and historically we attribute uh, God's uh, creation to the Father, to the work of the Father. Then you see the advent of the Son in redemptive history as we progressively work our way through the Old Testament and get to the Incarnation, uh, you know, birth, uh, life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And then at Pentecost, uh, you see the outpouring of the Spirit as Christ ascends, and as according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:45, Christ becomes that life-giving Spirit, and he pours out the Spirit. And the reason that redemptive history takes on this Trinitarian cast, and we could even say the Trinitarian covenantal cast, is because in the covenant of redemption, the Father sends the Son, and then as a consequence of his successful work, the Son pours out the Spirit, which are the terms of the uh, covenant of redemption. And you could read, for example, just a classic basic statement of the doctrine in somebody like Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, where he, he spells that out. But then, correlatively and connected to that, is why is it that the order of salvation falls out the way that it does? Why wouldn't we put, say, sanctification first? Why wouldn't we put uh, perseverance first? Why wouldn't we put uh, glorification first? And it's because we, in the order of salvation, we take the objective work of Christ uh, as covenant surety, and that is the objective foundation of our redemption, which then the Spirit applies to us. Uh, and hence, the order of salvation, once again, follows the contours and the lines of the covenant of redemption. In simpler Trinitarian terms, and this language goes back into Aquinas and others, you know, the, the order of salvation follows the missions and the processions, the, the, both the temporal missions and the eternal missions and the, uh, the eternal processions of our triune God. So in the simplest of terms, our salvation is Trinitarian and covenantal, and follows that Trinitarian covenantal pattern that we find established in the Covenant of Redemption. To me, that's an amazing, I think, insight that Voss provides that I really love to tell others about, and it helps us, I think, to understand the, the Trinitarian-shaped nature of our salvation. 
That's a great way of putting it, John. I, how you just, just described it is, and I love how you're using Voss as a foil here because Voss articulates it so well. Our, our listeners may also want to, uh, to know that, uh, of course, this isn't even original with, with the last couple of centuries. This, much of what you're describing goes back to the patristic era uh, in, in which mm-hmm. there, whether it's a, a Gregory or an Athanasius, uh, or, or maybe uh, an Augustine, or later you mentioned uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Thomas mm-hmm. spells all, spells many of these facets out in, in detail. But any uh, number of these individuals, uh, maybe not not entirely, but th- they at least hint at it. Describe how these e- these temporal missions that we see as we're th- thrust into the the storyline of of the Gospels, for example. Well, these stem from those eternal. Mm-hmm relations of of origin uh e- eternal generation eternal spiration um sometimes mm-hmm. they're described as uh paternity filiation and spiration uh well these are mm-hmm. these are the uh we we could say this is the uh, metaphysical foundation for everything that that we see happen yeah. in the work of redemption that's that's so key isn't it because otherwise like you've said uh there's a we we can be at risk for uh, entering into a very arbitrary understanding of salvation, in which mm-hmm. the Trinitarian persons mm-hmm. are just kind of randomly, uh, randomly ordered and uh, randomly relate to one another. Now, now, with all that said, yeah. all, all of mm-hmm. that said, uh, some may be thinking, uh, well, I understand the the covenant of redemption. That just is is another way of saying predestination or election. But uh, mm-hmm. I think I think I'm right in in, in uh, I think you'll back me up here in responding. Well, actually, there these are distinct, though uh, not unrelated, but distinct. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe you can tease that well, out some. No, that's a great observation, and I definitely want I agree with you on that point because I think one of the things that I can remember as a seminary student, you know, your you first year of the doctrine of election. And, you know, at least me personally, and I'm sure you were as well, you're kind of overwhelmed by the sense of God's sovereignty, and then you're simultaneously overwhelmed at the undeserved nature of our salvation and God's mercy. But one of the things I can remember when uh, discussing it with my friends, and maybe this is where I jokingly say that, you know, people pass through cage phase of Calvinism, so to speak, where they, uh, you know, you need to lock them in a cage because... They're potentially a danger to themselves and others because they only talk about predestination and they get very aggressive about it and they want to say, "Why don't you believe this?" And you know, they they want to kind of convert all of their friends uh, to, to, to you know to see. Look at Paul. Look at what he's saying. But I think that in our zeal or in my zeal, one of the things that gets forgotten is that we say that okay, God chooses. That's good, and we don't we don't connect it to anything else. It's just, it becomes this, this raw choice, and we kind of bellow out Romans 9.13, Esau, uh, you know, for Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And while that's true, uh, at the same time I want to say it's, it's a very thin, or you could say it's an abstracted account of what God is doing in uh, the doctrine of election. Because one of the things I point out in the book, and I tell my students this, is that what the covenant of redemption does is it gives us the clothing, if you will, 
or it's, it's the body, it's the flesh around the doctrine of election uh, that is distinct from it, but nevertheless gives it its shape and its beauty. Because if you were just to look at a skeleton, you would say, okay, well, that's, that's, that's just a part of a human being. We're just the rest of the human being. And in this case, when you read, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, where it says that we were chosen in Christ, in Him, I say, don't forget, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is His official messianic and covenantal title. It is His title as covenant surety, which means that Christ was first elected by the Father, chosen by the Father to be the covenant surety. And then when the Father chooses you, He doesn't choose you separate from Christ as some sort of bald exercise of His sovereignty, but rather He chooses you to be in the Messiah. This is the Messiah of whom it is spoken in Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the covenant, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So that what the covenant of redemption does is it gives us a full-orbed picture of the doctrine of election, one that is not simply abstracted, but rather that has all of the bones, joints, and ligaments of a full uh, and complete body of truth that says, you were chosen in Christ, who was appointed as covenant surety by the Father. It links soteriology, uh, it links Christology, it links theology proper, it links the doctrine of the Trinity. You could even argue ecclesiology and eschatology all find their linkage there in the covenant of redemption. And so that's why I want to say, yes, it, it is the doctrine of election, but it is also so much more. I think this is a reminder that whenever we talk about election, we have to do so through a Trinitarian lens. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what you've been describing, John. But uh, I mean, anytime we go to the New Testament, for example, and whether it's Ephesians uh, or Galatians or Philippians, any of Paul's epistles, uh, it, it's, it's so striking that he is describing our salvation he, in fact, he can't help but describe our salvation, but through Trinitarian vocabulary. It, it, it's as if uh-huh. it just saturates, uh, whether he's talking about justification or imputation, whether he's talking about sanctification, or whether he's talking about election itself, it saturates his understanding of soteriology. Now, as uh-huh. we close, there's one uh, final objection uh, that I'm going to th- uh-huh. throw out there from... from uh, those who, who are going to, uh, uh, I, when I, whenever I've presented uh, the covenant of redemption, this is sometimes an objection I get. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it at you and um, let you answer it instead this time. Sometimes uh, it's objected that, well, the covenant of redemption, this pactum salutis, it's not possible because there's only one will in God. Uh, and I would agree, uh-huh. yes, there is only one will in God, but sometimes that is used to say, well, the, the, this language of a covenant between an intra-Trinitarian covenant, surely this, this must mean then or assume that there are three wills in God instead of one. How do you respond to mm-hmm. that type of objection? Is it, is it the case that it, this covenant must lead to a type of social Trinitarianism? Uh, or, mm-hmm. I mean, we've, you've mentioned... Um, earlier, the, these eternal relations of origin, how, how 
does our, under, our understanding of the essence, the, the one simple undivided essence of God, how does that help us respond to this type of accusation? Yeah, no, I think first of all, <clears throat> I would say that with you, yes, we always want to agree with the, the classic historic uh, doctrine of the Trinity as the Church has hammered it out in the various uh, you know, Christological councils, Nicaea, Chalcedon, and others, where we say that we believe that God is one in essence and three in person, and that there's one unified will within the Godhead. We want to maintain and affirm those things, and I want to say that the covenant of redemption is completely compatible with that, uh, with that doctrine. So then secondly, how is it compatible? Well, again, this is something that I've learned from theologians from the past. You know, you find it, Voss quotes Owen on this particular point. Owen was aware of the objection himself, and I think that Owen, perhaps while not acknowledging the source, I think he's probably pulling it from Aquinas, and I suspect that Aquinas is pulling it from others in the greater Catholic tradition, again, Catholic with a small c, and it's that we say that we always push the unity of the Godhead, but never at the expense of the triunity. Conversely, we always want to push the triunity of God, but never at the expense of the unity. So we want to keep those two things in play, the, the one in essence, the three in person. And so we want to emphasize the unity of the will, but never at the expense of what St. Anselm, for example, would call the relational opposition that we have in the Trinity. In other words, that the Father is, uh, is of the same essence with the Spirit and the Son, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and vice versa. The Spirit is not the Son and the Father, and the Father and the Son are not the Spirit. So that, again, we want to preserve the three persons of the Trinity, so that when you get this uh, single unitary will, we say that when the triune God executes this single uh, solitary will, is that they do so in accordance with their persons, so that the unified will of God, for example, is to redeem. But the Father sends, and the Son is sent, or goes. It's not the Son who is who sends, but rather it is the Son who is sent. And so the, the single will is to redeem, but the Father and Son play different roles in that regard of executing that sing, singular will. So I, you know, I say we, we all would acknowledge... I hope, that it's the Son who dies on the cross, not the Father, not the Spirit. But nevertheless, that is His role that is peculiar to His person in executing the solitary will of God, so that the solitary will of God is a tailor fit, if you will, for each person of the Trinity. And so that's how we maintain the unity of the will, but nevertheless still respect how each person of the Trinity uniquely carries out that unitary will. And John, wouldn't you say what you're describing here also brings up the language of inseparable operations and divine appropriations, right? So, Correct, so yes. Stemming from the, the one simple undivided essence of God, we can then say, well, any time we see a work of redemption, whether or, or maybe it's beyond redemption, maybe it's creation or providence or redemption, Anytime we see mm-hmm. these works, uh, there is an inseparable operation. Uh, all three mm-hmm. persons of the Trinity uh, are 
are involved at play and united in, in any one work. And yet at the same time, as you've, you've just used this, this language of maybe a peculiar uh, um, or application or um, maybe uh-huh. I've seen some use the language of a uh, termination, uh, whatever language it is, and at the same time, there is in any one act uh, the, maybe we could say, to put it colloquially, that the spotlight uh, seems to shine uh, on on one person as they are executing that that one mm-hmm. will of God, and and of course mm-hmm. the cross is is a great example of this. It's not the Father who dies on the cross; uh, that would be another Trinitarian mm-hmm. heresy. Uh, it's the Son who right. dies on the cross, yeah. and yet even yeah. there, uh, the Father and the Holy Spirit are at work. Uh, would you? Mm-hmm. Is, does that sound agreeable? I mean, would we? Would you use the language of one will in a in a threefold execution? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization of it because, as you said, we would focus the spotlight on the Son and the cross, but even then, it's the Father sending the Son to the cross, and then, according to Hebrews nine, it's the it's the Son offering himself up in the in the power of the eternal Spirit. On the cross, mm, as so Hebrews says, all yeah. Three members are, yeah. So all three members are operating there, but yes, the focus or the spotlight at that particular moment happens to be on the sun. But yeah, I think you're right. It's one one will in threefold execution. Well, we've been talking with John Fesco, uh, the author of many books uh, that I would recommend to our listeners. In light of this conversation, you may want to pick up his book, The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption, with Mentor and Christian Focus Publishing. Here is a thorough treatment of the Covenant of Redemption, and John, in in that book, offers a rich exegetical discussion in, uh, in one part of the book, and then turns to offer a historical and a dogmatic construction as well. Uh, I think that our listeners will really enjoy that book. It's despite the complication uh, or maybe the complexity of so many of these difficult issues we're talking about, uh, John writes in a way that's so clear, adds clarity to the discussion, and uh, helpfully guides you as a theologian through these difficult waters so that you understand the biblical texts and theological orthodoxy all the more. John, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, happy to be here, and God willing, I look forward to being back with you in the future. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation a conversation where doctrine matters.